like any good story, the story arc of the Bible moves from conflict to resolution. Like any good story, the story arc of the Bible moves from conflict first to resolution in the end. There's a battle before peace, toil before rest, darkness before light, night before morning, suffering before glory, death before resurrection, a cross before a crown. The good news of Jesus Christ is that in Him, peace with God can be had and that peace is coming. Peace is coming. Peace is coming. Do you remember what we studied last week? How the, the, the grand story of the Bible is moving from a garden-like temple city in the beginning to a garden-like temple city in the end. That's where the story ends. Us living with God in a temple city that has all these garden features, garden-like features. There's a kind of peace we can't even fathom with our little pea brains that's coming for those who are in Christ. A kind of peace that we get a taste of in this earth, I would argue, in the local church. A kind of peace where when people from all over the world with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of opinions come together in Christ and do what John just read, love one another, have peace together and not war. This kind of peace can be seen and had today in Christ with God vertically and with one another in local churches horizontally, but there still will be war. There will be war. There is war. The battle began in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. In mercy, God came to Adam and Eve, broke up their unholy alliance with Satan. Genesis 3.15, you might remember, said that there will now be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. In other words, God didn't just give up Adam and Eve to kind of go over to Satan's side. He said, rather, you're going to be on opposing sides. You're going to be fighting each other from here on out. This is the big battle that began at the dawn of human history, will last until Jesus comes back. Enmity is the key word. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 has a way of framing the entire story of the Bible, just like the account of the Garden of Eden does. There will be war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There is war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Our text this morning, as we move through Genesis, is Genesis 4. We're coming to Genesis 4 after 20 weeks in Genesis 3. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There is a God in heaven. We're moving on from Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 4 is the first, we might call it, skirmish in this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The battle breaks out very obviously. The war begins in Genesis 4. This is the beginning of the battle. So find Genesis 4. If you haven't opened your Bible already, please do so. I highly encourage you to bring your own Bible. Open your phone if you're less spiritual. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. All of you hate me now who have your phones open. Grab, grab a Bible from the pew backs in front of you. Find Genesis 4. I'm going to do my best just to get our eyes on the text of Genesis 4 as much as possible. So follow along with me as we go along. We're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, and work our way through the text methodically like that. Genesis chapter 4. 
the battle begins. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. New there, of course, means they had sexual relations. This is new in the biblical sense, right? I've always wanted to say that. You get any, any of you? Okay, no. Anyways, they knew each other very intimately. They, they had sexual relations, which produced a child, offspring, the gift of children. By the way, this is amazing that, that Adam and Eve got to leave the garden after they rebelled against God. Number one, they got to leave the garden with this beautiful gift called marriage. God let them keep marriage. This is amazing. God let them keep marriage. They also get to have children. There's going to be the blessing of offspring. This is the first one. Eve conceives, gives birth to a child named Cain. She may have thought that this child, her firstborn, was the seed of the woman. Because she says there, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's almost like she's looking for the seed of the woman. She says, look, look what the Lord has done. He's given the seed. He's, he's brought someone who will come and conquer the serpent. Perhaps Cain will be the one who will defeat evil. But then verse 2 says she gives birth to another son. And again, verse 2, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. I won't get into this too much, but Abel was keeping sheep, Cain, working the ground. This is what God told Adam way back in chapter 1, to work and keep the garden. Remember, work and keep, to cultivate God's creation, and that's what they're doing. Working the ground, keeping the livestock. But then verses 3 through 5, the action begins. Verses 3 through 5 say this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. If you've read or come across this story before, you've surely wondered why the Lord accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. It's a very fair question. It's a very, very Good question. Why did the Lord accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's? If we were the Israelites under Moses' teaching, receiving this book as we're about to enter the promised land, having already received the law, knowing the law, knowing the rest of what the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament say, if we were Israelites receiving this for the first time, we would probably know instinctively why the Lord regarded Abel's offering and not Cain's. What do I mean by that? Notice verse 4. Notice the language. Notice the details. The details are important. Verse 4 says, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He brought the firstborn and the fat portions. This is the kind of offering that the Lord would later command the Israelites to bring to him when he gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. God called Israel to bring him the firstborn with fat portions. Now, there were other kinds of offerings as well, but the main kinds of sin offerings and guilt offerings were 
from the firstborn of the flock with the fat portions. In other words, God called Israel to bring him their very best. Bring me the firstborn. Bring me the fatty portions to burn on the altar. Why the firstborn? Just think, if you only have one of something, then you give that up. (laughs) What is that? It's an act of faith, trust, that the Lord will provide more. Bring me the firstborn. Bring me the fatty portions. Bring me the good stuff. The Greeks would often bring to their gods like all the entrails and the, the ligaments and the tendons, all the stuff that no one likes. And they kind of assumed that, and they would teach that, you know, the gods, they like that stuff. They don't like the stuff that we like. <laughs> but interestingly, Israel's God in the law says, no, bring me the good stuff. Bring me the good stuff. Don't bring me the, the entrails and the ligaments and the tendons and all that stuff. Bring me, bring me the fat portions. Why? Because he wanted his people to demonstrate his value to them by giving back to him their very best. Can I say that again? He wanted his people to demonstrate his value to them by giving back to him their very best. Abel, in a sense, obeyed the law of God before it was even given to Moses in Israel. He showed total dedication to the Lord. He brought his very best. He brought his firstborn, his fat portions. Abel's attitude, we might say Abel's attitude is is like this. He's like, he's like saying, because God is what's most important to me, I want to give him the best that I have. I want to give the first fruits. I want to give the firstborn. I want to give the fat portions. But also notice at the end of verse 4 that the Lord isn't only or maybe even primarily interested in what Abel brings, but in how or who brings it. Verse 4. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and, secondarily, his offering. The Lord looks at the person of Abel before he looks at the gift of Abel. The Lord had regard for Abel. The Lord always looks at the heart of a person, at their motivation, before he looks at their gift. This is why Jesus in the temple, he's like, hey hey guys, you see that, that widow who just gave two pennies she just gave more than everybody else and they're like what she just gave two cents he's like you're missing it you're focusing on on what she gave i i see what happened inside of her that compelled her to give everything she had and it's beautiful go and do likewise the lord always looks at the heart of a person before he looks at their gift this is why hebrews later will say this about abel Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith Abel brought his offering. Later in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. If you don't trust that God is the highest treasure in the universe, you're not going to please Him. You're going to dutifully serve Him. Out of some misplaced fear of man, without a trust and hope and delight in God for God. In other words, to summarize, Abel's heart of trust in the Lord, by faith Abel offered to God, his heart of trust in the Lord is why the Lord regarded his offering. His heart of faith overflowed in bringing the best of what he had. Cain, on the other hand, just brought, verse 3 says, an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
He doesn't bring the first fruits of the ground. He doesn't bring the best of his labors. His offering is something he has to do, not something he wants to do. It seems that his heart isn't in it. And as his reaction will show us and the rest of the chapter will show us, his attitude is the opposite of Abel's. His posture is, I know I have to make a sacrifice, but I really don't want to, so I'll just get some fruit of the ground and bring that, but I'd really rather be doing what I want to be doing. So here you go, God. Here's some stuff. I hope you're happy. (laughs) Therefore, the Lord's response to Cain was the opposite of what it was to Abel. Verse 5, for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. The Lord responds this way to Cain because he wants to be treated like he's what's most important. And brothers and sisters, he wants us to respond to him in a way that screams unequivocally that he's the most important thing in the universe. He wants us to respond to him in such a way that reveals that we have no treasure greater than him. Often when I'm praying with my boys at the end of the day, I'll say something like this, Lord, you're the only thing we need and the best thing we have. And I'm saying that to myself, by the way, because I'm like, man, what if our house burns down? You know, what if something tragic happens? What if this? What if that? What if whatever? Do I really believe that I'm going to be okay with just me and Jesus Christ? Is he really enough to get me through whatever storm comes? The Lord wants us to respond to him like we literally believe that we have no treasure greater than him. He wants us to be confident that if we do offer to him a sacrificial gift, he'll more than repay. He wants us to believe Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 when it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The Lord wants us to be so confident that when we give sacrificially, we just know He's going to provide for us. So we just open up our hands and we give because He's so great. And we know He's going to take care of us. This is why the Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but disregards Cain's offering. When we come to God like Cain comes, we don't please God and we don't make our lives better. We may make our lives look more religious, but we aren't built up. We don't receive a blessing from the Lord. We may please someone who wants us to come to church, who wants us to stop cussing, who wants us to stop this or stop that or whatever. We may please someone who wants us to change a behavior, but if our offerings to God are just some outward show meant to make us look good and not from our hearts, we're like Cain. Because Cain didn't give himself completely to God, God has no regard for his offering. Now, as I said at the beginning of the service, I tried to spell this out in some practical ways. What does this even mean? I know this sounds... What does it mean for you, brother or sister in Christ, to give your best offering to God? Pick up a copy of the church newsletter on your way out. Read it. It's in your inbox. You might need to go pull it out of the trash can and read it. I just tried to give you 10 very clear New Testament ways that we, we can reveal that God truly is our highest treasure. Not things we have to do to get His acceptance, but because we already have it. Look how Cain responds at the end of verse 5. 
So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I love how the CSB translates this. It says, so Cain was, so Cain was furious and he was despondent. I think that gets at the sense of this text really well. He was furious and despondent. He kind of just shriveled up on himself. Cain was angry with God for not accepting his offering. This shows us that what's most important in Cain's heart is Cain. Cain thinks, man, God, you should have liked my sacrifice. Whether it was my best or not, you should have accepted it. But think of it. If you're really trying to please someone with a gift, if you're really trying to please someone with a gift and they don't like your gift, (laughs) this has happened to me with Susie more than once. Um, Just ask her. If you're really trying to please someone with a gift and they don't like your gift, how do you respond? You respond by finding out what would make them happy and doing everything you can to give them that. But Cain is consumed with Cain. So he responds with anger, not repentance. He doesn't want to change anything. He's just mad that God didn't like his gift. What we offer to God reveals our heart toward God. Let me say this again, and it's worth noting this, because this, in a sense, summarizes the, the whole point of this first part of this text. What we offer to God reveals our heart toward God. And as we're about to see, how we regard God is reflected in how we treat other people. What we offer to God reveals our heart toward God. And how we regard God is reflected in how we treat other people. Does this sound familiar? What does Jesus say summarizes all the law and the prophets? The whole Old Testament is summarized by two commands. He calls two things one great command. To what? Not a trick question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor. They're directly related. The way this is happening or not happening reflects the way this is happening or not happening. That's what's happening in this text. This whole chapter is about the two great commandments, about loving God and loving your neighbor, and what happens when we don't love God properly and then therefore don't love our neighbor. The marvelous thing here, you might notice, is the next few verses, verse 6 and 7 and following. Like a good parent, the Lord actually goes after Cain. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why does... Why is your face fallen? This reminds you of him going after Adam and Eve in the garden. Instead of driving Cain away with threats, there's, there's punishment coming, just, just wait. But instead of coming with threats and initial condemnation, he comes with questions. Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. The Lord is saying to Cain that despite his sin, he still has the opportunity to do what's right. He's not a helpless victim of Satan. He can fight sin. He can do what's right, be accepted by God. He'll just turn away from his worthless sacrifice, bring an acceptable sacrifice, trusting that God is worth it. He'll be accepted. The Lord says that if you do well, will you not be accepted? And then we, we really need to 
hear this as the Lord saying, Cain, I'm ready to be merciful to you. I'm ready to be merciful to you, Cain. I know what you did. I know how lame your offering was. Man, you can fix it. You can fix it. We should hear this as God's generosity. Cain, you blew it. That was a bad sacrifice. We're not minimizing what you did. We're going to name what's true. That's a bad sacrifice. But if you'll turn away from that reproach, excuse me, approach, and do the right thing, I'll accept you. You'll have my favor. If you'll trust that I reward those who seek me, as Hebrews 11 6 says, if you trust that you'll be rewarded by trusting in me and me alone, I'll give you my favor. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do well, you'll be accepted. This is the invitation for us this morning. Many of us struggle with wondering whether we're accepted with God. Some of us know that we haven't yet followed Christ and given our faith, put our faith in Him. Listen to the generosity of God. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, please don't misunderstand. misunderstand. This doesn't mean that if you keep all the rules and do a good job in life, God will like you. <laughs> That's not what it means. It doesn't mean if you keep the law, God will count you as righteous. It's the exact opposite message of the whole, the whole New Testament. We cannot earn God's acceptance. What it does mean is that when we come to God and we say, God, I believe that you're good and merciful and I believe that you've made provision for my sin in Christ and I confess that my offerings, my life, my actions, my words, my intentions, my ambitions, all of the stuff that you know about that no one else may know about, I, I, I confess that all of this stuff has been a bad offering. I confess that, but I also believe that you've made provision for that in Christ. I'm trusting you, God to please give me mercy. I believe that you delight to accept those who trust in you. Then you'll have his favor. You'll have his mercy. You'll have his generosity. You'll have his grace. If you do well, you'll be accepted. But as long as you continue to try to perform your way into that relationship, the relationship will elude you. You have to come open-handed. The only thing you need to do is come and confess your need. If you do well, you'll be accepted. This is the invitation for Cain, but notice that the invitation in verse 7 is followed by a warning. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Then, verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Crouching sin sounds ominous, doesn't it? Crouching sin. Sin is like a crouching animal waiting to pounce on Cain and kill him. God is saying that if Cain nurses his anger towards God and his jealousy towards his brother, then he's leaving himself wide open to an attack from a dangerous animal. In other words, he's saying, Cain, if you don't repent, sin will kill you. You're going to die if you don't do something about what's on your doorstep. The gospel comes with an invitation. The gospel comes with a warning. All are welcome at Jesus' table. 
all are welcome. All you have to do is confess your need for him, put your faith in him, turn away from your sins, embrace him as your only hope, and you're at his table forever. The gospel also comes with a warning. If you do not put your hope in Jesus Christ and turn away from your sins, you will be excluded from his table and live in everlasting hell forever. That's what's happening here. Invitation and warning. God warns Cain. But then notice how Cain responds. Cain ignores him. He ignores the warning. Instead, he lets anger and jealousy rule his heart. As we tell our kids, he lets anger be the boss. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Cain knows exactly what he's doing. He takes his brother out to the field. That details mentioned for a reason. They're out in the field. Why? Because out in the field, there's no witnesses, and out in the field, no one will hear Abel's screams. Out in the field, no one will know of the evil that Cain has done. This is premeditated murder. He takes his brother to the field because he wants to kill his brother because he's angry at God and jealous of his brother. So he takes him out there where there's no witnesses. Of course, there's no witnesses but one. There is indeed one witness. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain responds to God's questions with a bold-faced lie. He knew exactly where Abel was, where he left his body or buried his body. He knew. He knew. He knew. And he lied. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. Cain's lie shows us that he's moved over into the devil's camp. You remember verse 1? Eve, it seems that Eve thought that maybe Cain was the seed who would crush the devil, but it turns out that Cain has joined the devil's team. His anger against God, his jealousy of his brother, created an opening for the devil, and Cain walks right through it. He kills his brother, then lies to God about what he's done. He's not the seed of the woman. He's the seed of the serpent trying to destroy the seed of the woman. In verse 10, God mercifully and patiently again calls out to Cain, Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He calls out to Cain mercifully, just like he did with Adam and Eve. What have you done? What's he doing here? Why doesn't God just come and kill him? Why doesn't God just drive him out immediately, just punish him right on the spot? What, why does he ask the question? God is not, God knows what he did. This is so instructive for us, friends. God comes to sinners in the middle of their sin with questions, not threats. What have you done? What is he doing? He's inviting confession. He's inviting repentance. He's inviting, for, he's inviting his people to just be honest, to tell them what's true. What have you done? He's giving him opportunity to see just how merciful he can be, but Cain refuses God's mercy. And everyone who refuses God's mercy will live under the curse of God. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, 
your brother's blood from your hand. <coughs> Genesis 3, remember God curses the serpent, then he curses the ground. He doesn't curse Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve stand for the seed of the woman. But now God curses Cain. He's cursed serpent, ground, now Cain, because he's indicating that Cain is the seed of the serpent. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, serpent has split humanity into two camps. Some are on the serpent's side. Some are on God's side. The, there are those who respond to God by giving him the best of what they are and loving other people and being honest with God. They're the seed of the woman, and some who respond to God by saying that God is an imposition to their lives. They end up hating people, despising people, minimizing people, and lying about how they treat people. This is the seed of the serpent. Two camps. Which one do you live in? Two camps. There's no third option, brothers and sisters. There's no third option. In Genesis, we can start to trace the line of the serpent down through who, those who are cursed. Again, the serpent is cursed. Cain is cursed. Noah's grandson will be cursed in chapter 9. Then it says in chapter 12 that everyone who opposes Abram or Abraham will be cursed. The seed of the serpent are those cursed like their father, the devil. And not only is he cursed, just like Adam, Cain is going to receive consequences in this life too. Verse 12 when you work the ground, the Lord says, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to, you its, yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So Cain will work the ground with toil, see little fruit. He'll be a wanderer because sin always makes our lives harder. I wonder if you have a testimony about sin making your life easier. I'd love to hear your story, if that's your story. Has sin made your life easier? Verses 13 and 14, Lord, uh, excuse me, Cain cries out to the Lord in response. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now you might remember later in the law, in, in Israel's society, if, if a person was killed, a relative of the, of the person who was killed could hunt down the person who did the killing and kill them. That's why the Lord gave them cities of refuge. But the Lord is saying here that in mercy, it's not, going to be like, it's not going to be like that with Cain. Cain, no one's going to kill you. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So the Lord in mercy, despite cursing Cain, says that he's going to be exempt from this vengeful murder that Israel would have certainly understood, murdering of someone who murdered someone else. What is this mark? What is this mark that God puts on Cain? Well, the text doesn't tell us. There's your answer. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about this. What's the mark? Was it a big thing on his head? You know, Was it some robe he wore? There's a lot of debate about it. What's important is what the mark stood for. The mark stood for God's protection. It was meant to, to shield Cain from a, a vengeful person coming and taking vengeance upon Cain for what he'd done to Abel. 
This is again mercy. Cain had switched sides, joined Satan's team, murdered the seed of the woman, so God rightly curses him, but he doesn't send him to hell immediately, and he even allows him to live on the earth without someone coming to kill him. He puts a mark on him to protect his life. This is a mark of mercy. This is a mark of what we might call common grace. God, even today, gives good gifts to people who hate him. Remember what Jesus says? Your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even traitors like Cain get to live and enjoy God's son and God's reign and God's protection. I think we're tempted to think that God is, is fundamentally angry towards sinners. He is. But remember the refrain of the Old Testament again and again. He's slow to anger. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. It never says he's quick to anger. He allows people who don't acknowledge him at all to live on his earth and enjoy his earth and enjoy protection even because he wants them to come to him. He wants sinners to repent. Cain receives this mark of protection. It says in verse 16, he moves into the land of wandering. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, or the land of wandering east of Eden. Because sinners cannot live in the presence of God, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden after they sinned. Now Cain moves even further away from the presence of the Lord. He moves east of Eden. God's curse goes with him, but God's common grace also goes with him. He's able to experience the blessing of children. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Interesting that the Lord says to Cain, hey, you're going to wander over the earth. The first thing Cain does is build a city. It's almost like Cain is still just consumed with Cain. No, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You told me to be a wanderer, that I would be a wanderer. I'm going to build a city because I'm going to do it my way. But he has kids, and then those kids and those descendants start to develop culture. Look at verses 18 through 22. To Enoch was born Irad. Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zilah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. A lot of people will say, well, Genesis 1 through 11 isn't about history. It isn't meant to tell us what happened way back when. Well, actually, I think this text says, yes, it is. It is intended to tell us what happened and where certain things came from. It is a historical document. But this cultural development is yet further indication of God's common grace in Cain's descendants. God is enabling people to live in a harsh environment who have rejected him through the gifts of cultural development. Forgers of iron and bronze. Crops. Even music, verse 21. Isn't this amazing? And I think it's Paul and Barnabas. Don't they, don't they talk about, I forget what city they're in. They say, you don't know God, but God is the one who made you happy. Have you ever considered that? Unbelievers, people who don't know God, are given so many good gifts from God. Gifts like music, 
gifts like joy and happiness in this life. This is God's common grace down the cursed line of Cain. But as Lamech's story shows us, not all is well in the world east of Eden. He breaks God's creation law by marrying two wives. Verse 19, it says he took two wives, whereas the law of creation was there would be one man and one woman in one marriage. Then in verses 23 and 24, he starts to boast about killing a man who wounded him. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. God's law demanded that punishment fit the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Lamech moves beyond this and kills a man who injured him. Then he brags about it. He takes God's words to Cain and says he'll, he'll do them 70 times better. He vows unending vengeance. He doesn't need God's protection. He can fend for himself. In other words, Cain and those in his line are self-focused, self-preserving, self-protecting, brutal, and unrepentant. And they're boasting about it. They're, they're singing about it. This is the fruit of Adam and Eve's sin. In only seven generations, humans now boast about their power to defend themselves, boast about not needing God, not obeying His laws, trying to be gods for themselves. We might say it this way, that humanity has disintegrated into full-blown secularism, a life without any reference to God. Of course, the kind of life that continues to this day. Secularism starts here. You know, it didn't start with the election of some president. It didn't start with the Enlightenment. It started here. People living without a reference to God. And I think, brothers and sisters, if we're really honest, with all of our cultural developments, with all our technology, all our armies, all our money, don't we also live as a law unto ourselves? Don't we also kind of just do whatever we want to do and assume that God's good with that? We can defend ourselves. We can have pleasure. We have little computers in our pockets all the time to distract us from the deeper, richer, more meaningful things of life. We don't need God. We have all that we need. And so sometimes, brothers and sisters, I fear that even as Christians, we are functional secularists, living without reference to Him, living without a conscious day-by-day, moment-by-moment realization that God is everything we need and all that we really have in the end. Now, if, if Moses, the writer, ended the narrative there, that'd be pretty, pretty bleak, pretty dark. But instead of ending the narrative on this awful note of this boastful man, Lamech, look at what he does. Look at what he does in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again. So he's taking us back to Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. 
At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Adam and Eve remembered the promise of 315. They believed the promise that there would be offspring. They were looking for the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Eve realizes here that Cain was not that seed and that Abel now has been replaced by Seth. Don't miss this. I think we could argue that this is the point of the whole passage. In the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God is faithful to make sure that the seed of the woman will not die. That the seed of the woman will continue no matter what. God will make sure that the woman's seed wins and that the devil loses. Why else would Moses stick this on here at the end of this passage? To remind us that God will be faithful to ensure that the seed of the woman prevails over the seed of the serpent. In contrast to Cain and those in the serpent's line, those in Seth's line, see verse 26, call upon the name of the Lord. They recognize their dependence on the Lord. They're not like Cain and all of his descendants. They're recognizing that they're dependent on the Lord. They make the Lord the central part of their lives, the central thing in their lives. They pray to Him, worship Him, dedicate their lives to Him. They proclaim His name. Genesis 4 tells us that God is faithful to preserve a people like this for Himself on the earth. If He weren't, this line would have died out with Abel. Again, this is a cry of faith from Eve. She said, verse 25, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. God did this. What is she saying? She's not just saying, God gave me another kid. She's not saying that. She's saying, no, God gave us the seed of the woman. He gave. He's been faithful to give us another child who will defeat evil. Evil will not win. It looks like Cain's line is winning, but he won't win. The cursed line of Cain will indeed lose. God is raising up Seth and his descendants, as we'll see next week in chapter 5, to continue moving his plan to dwell again with his people on the earth. Forward. This means, though, that the bitter battle with the seed of the serpent continues. Abel was the first martyr for God. He wouldn't be the last. The Egyptians drowned the Israelite boys in the Nile. Jezebel killed so many prophets in Israel that Elijah thought he was the only one left. But God kept his people alive until the coming of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Satan managed to have Jesus killed, but the persecution didn't stop there. Stephen was stoned by an angry mob. Herod Agrippa killed James. The Romans killed Paul and Peter. The early church suffered so many martyrs. The early church fathers even wrote on this. They rightly saw that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You might even say they said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the woman. Through persecution, God would faithfully continue the line of the seed of the woman to this very day. Now, wait, we may think that, that, that this doesn't really involve us, this great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent doesn't really involve us here in North America because we have relative peace. And praise God for religious freedom. We're able to come in here without fear of persecution or people shutting our church down. But did you know that people are dying for Christ all over the world? Just this week, I had lunch with a pastor friend from Cameroon. He lives here, but he's Cameroonian. He has a lot of friends back there. West Africa, and he told me about a pastor friend there who was killed just in the last year in churches in his area who, uh, that have been burned down. The 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than the previous 19th centuries combined. The World Christian Encyclopedia published in 2001 puts the number at 45 million. 
the authors estimate that in the decade of the 90s, an average of 160,000 Christians were killed in countries all over the world. These are our brothers and sisters. What do we do with this? I think it's tempting to hear a text like this and to hear about a battle with you know, Satan and God and evil and good and all, and kind of assume that it doesn't apply to us. But these are our brothers and sisters. The seed of the serpent is still on the prowl, killing many of God's people. Do you remember that passage in Revelation 6, 10, and 11? It literally says that the full number of martyrs has to come in before the end comes. God literally says that there's a number of people who will die for Christ before the end happens. That's astonishing. There's a sense in which people must continue to suffer at the hands of the seed of the serpent before the seed of the woman comes back and ends it all. We're all involved in this battle, brothers and sisters. There's no special group that gets to sit on the sideline and watch while other disciples battle through prayer and sacrifice and evangelism and hospitality and cross-cultural missions and radical generosity. This is our shared enterprise. It's really easy for a church like ours to get really excited for the good work of a sister like Maddie Ellis and be excited about her but do nothing ourselves. This is our temptation. So I want to ask, like, what are you doing, brother or sister? What are you doing to push the mission forward? What sacrifices are you making in the big battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? Where are your efforts promoting God's kingdom and pushing back on the kingdom of, kingdom of darkness? Let me just get even more pointed because even these questions are too vague and too abstract. Let me ask some more pointed questions. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you shared the gospel? This is not a drive-by guilting, okay? I hope it's not that. Please don't hear it that way. When was the last time you told someone with your words that Jesus loves them, that there's a God in heaven who made them and a Christ who died on the cross for their sins? When was the last time you told someone that? Friends, when was the last time you talked to your neighbors? Like, it's so easy. We could talk at length about this president and this party and this video game and this sporting. We could talk ad nauseum about all this stuff. When was the last time you talked to your neighbor? Could you tell me the names of your neighbors? People made in the image of God? People who desperately need Christ? Could you even tell me their names? God didn't save us to just kind of sit on the sidelines while the, wor the world burns. Who are you praying for? Who are you interceding for? Here's a question that we all need to answer. Does our financial giving to the cause of Christ hurt a little bit? Does it hurt a little bit? Or are we like the typical American evangelical and give about 2 or 3% of our income? You know, we spend loads of money on all kinds of stuff that doesn't matter. 2 or 3% to the cause of Christ. What are you doing to push the cause forward? 
all of Jesus' disciples are called into this battle. This is not a battle just for those out on the mission field. This is a battle we're all called into. And there may be a time, maybe even in this own country, in our own lifetime, who knows, where we have to consider carefully whether we would give our lives for Jesus Christ. Do you ever ask yourself that question? Brothers and sisters, let me please just encourage you to ask yourself this question. It's super um, clarifying, at least for me. Gun to your head, would you confess Christ? Does courage or cowardice win the day in that moment for you? Would you choose life over death for King Jesus? Would you go the way of Cain or the way of Abel? We need to ask ourselves these questions. The old cliche is, the kinds of things you'll die for reveals what you're living for. Right? John's first letter helps us on this point. First John, another John, Hudlow, read this earlier, non-inspired John. Listen again to what John says. He writes to a persecuted church. He uses Cain and Abel as an example of how the world will treat us. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Then down in chapter 4, verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, little children, you are from the God, excuse me, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The seed of the woman will conquer despite the pressure of persecution, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, the church will win because God lives in the church. The seed of the woman will not lose. We will prevail. Even if many of us die in the process. Let me give an illustration. When I come across a good illustration, I, I latch onto it because uh, I'm not good with illustrations. And this was helpful in my mind. Um, let me see if it helps you. Professor Sidney Gradanus gives an illustration how the church survives under such great pressure through the ages. He talks about the nuclear, nuclear submarine thresher. Has anyone heard of the thresher? This was all new to me. Anybody? Two people. Three. Praise the Lord. Okay, so in the 60s, there was a submarine made called the Thresher. It had heavy steel bulkheads, heavy steel armor, so it could go really deep withstanding the pressure of the ocean. But unfortunately, during a test run in 1963, something went wrong. The sub couldn't resurface, and it sank. As it sank uh, deeper and deeper and deeper in the ocean, it, it crumbled. It imploded. The pressure became so Im immense that the heavy steel bulkheads buckled. The sub was crushed, killing all 129 people inside. Now, the Navy went to search for the wreckage, but they had to use a research craft shaped like a ball that could go down on a cable that was much stronger than a submarine. This ball was lowered down into the ocean and finally found the thresher at a depth of 8,400 feet. That's a mile and a half. 8,400 feet. The thresher was crushed like an eggshell. It was burst into hundreds of pieces all over the seafloor. That wasn't surprising to the searchers because the pressure at that depth is 3,600 pounds per square inch. All you engineers in the room are like, yeah, that's a lot. I don't really have anything to compare that to, but it sounds like a lot. 3,600 pounds per square inch. So it's not surprising that it imploded 
and blew up like an eggshell, so to speak. But what was shocking to the searchers as they're down there looking at all the pieces of the submarine is that as they're looking at the submarine, fish start floating by, swimming by. At that depth, 8,400 feet, fish. No steel armor on the fish, no heavy bulkheads. You know, they have fish skin, which isn't thick. (laughs) How could those fish survive at that depth? Well, it turns out that they weren't crushed by the pressure of the water because they have the same pressure inside of themselves as they have on the outside. They survive under great pressure because of what's in them. Remember what John said. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So if God is in you, That means, church, that we will be victorious against this battle against the seed of the serpent. Why? Because God himself is in us. If God is in us, we won't lose. We might die, but we're not going to lose. We might die. Maybe that's not as helpful because maybe we won't die. Maybe we will. I don't know. We might have to give more money than we've ever given to missions. We might have to open our mouth and share the gospel. We might have to even lose our job because we believe in biblical ethics. We might have to make numerous kinds of sacrifices, but we won't lose. (laughs) We won't lose. The world can mock us. The world can assume that they've sunk us. The Spirit of God is in us, and we will be with Him, and He will be with us till the end. John even writes, like, our victory is a done deal. Little children, you are from God and have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Let me give you two quick things and we'll be done. This text is a good illustration, as I said earlier, of the greatest commandment. We're either living our lives loving and worshiping God and being our brother's keeper, or we're doing the exact opposite. We're either loving God and our neighbors, or we're loving ourselves and ignoring our neighbors. So, what do we do? Well, first, we need to pray. We need to pray, Lord, help me to love you the way I should. Help me to be more concerned about you than I am about myself. Help me to believe that whatever sacrifice I make for your cause, will, you will more than repay Lord, help me to make you the greatest treasure of my life. And then we pray, Lord, help me not to be so self-centered. Make me somebody who is my brother's keeper, who thinks about other people. Help me to build a a mindset about what other people are going through. Help me to be mindful about where they're at. Help me to engage them with curious questions about their story and their pain and their suffering and their sin. Help me to have an imagination that considers what their reality is like, not just kind of imposing on them what my life is like and therefore assume what their life must also be like. Lord, give me compassion for other people. Brothers and sisters, the best way to do this, by the way, is just to listen. Just to listen. I got to write a a little thing for my best friend is turning 50 this year and his wife's putting a book together for him and we're writing something for him. And, and I wrote this. I wrote, here's what I love about my brother, Mark. I love that he has always been persistently curious about what's going on with me. This has been an oasis for my weary soul. I have never questioned your love, brother, because of your questions. In other words, one of those obvious ways we can love our neighbors by listening. 
James says it this way, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Being listened to is about as close to being loved, so close that you can't usually tell the difference. Brothers and sisters, let's love God with all of our hearts. Let's love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's go out of our way to share the gospel and to show fruits of the gospel in our lives. Let's not be like Cain, who loved Cain and killed his brother. Let's be like Abel, who gave God the best he had. Let's pray together. Father, so much more could be said. Please, Father, take your word and write it on our hearts. Your word is what changes us. Your word is what we need. Your spirit, Father, please come. Please come. Holy Spirit, please come. Show us where we are more like Cain than we might realize. Help us to put those things to death turn away from those things. Help us to be more like Abel. Help us to bring you our best and help us to remember that there's really only one man who ever gave you his very best, his absolute best. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ, whose blood speaks a word better than Abel's because his blood takes away sin. So, Father, help us to look to Christ. Help us to rest in Christ. Help us not to try to serve and perform and do all these things because we have to, but because we want to. Help us to make you the treasure of our lives. And from that, help us to love our neighbors. For Jesus' sake, we pray in his name. Amen.